0: Welcome back Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast and this is week number 50. And this week we're going to work our way through several small books starting with Galatians and ending with 1 Thessalonians. So let's get started with Galatians today. Now the main reason that Paul writes Galatians is to reaffirm the truth that salvation is by faith alone. People are saved by faith and are to live by faith now, one additional thing to note in this small book is the key role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The root of every Christian's Christianity is God's supply of His Spirit. and the first 10 verses of chapter 1... Form the introduction. But Paul's introduction here is short and sweet. He wants to get right to the point, and he is amazed how quickly his readers have departed from the truth. Paul rebukes his readers for turning away from the gospel that he had preached to them and for turning toward a different gospel or another gospel. He warns his readers to reject false teaching, even if it comes from angelic messengers sent directly from heaven. From chapter 1, verse 10 through all of chapter 2, Paul's defense he defends, excuse me, his apostolic authority. You know, he clarified that the source of his gospel message, both his commission and his message, came directly from Christ. He was, of course, speaking of his Damascus Road experience because he did not receive these things from traditional sources like the apostles and prophets did. And after Paul's conversion experience, he goes into an undefined area of Arabia for three years. I'm sure that he needed some time alone, with God to figure out some things. But after the three years, he goes to Jerusalem to see Peter, staying with him for a total of 15 days, and then he leaves again and heads north. Now, you might be asking why all the need to review history for Paul? Well, Paul wanted to make two points. First, his theology was not formed by any contact with other men, particularly the 12 apostles. And second, his doctrinal system was developed before his public ministry began. So chapter 1, Paul defends the source of his message, and chapter 2, he defends the content of his message. So 14 years after Paul had left to go north, he returned to Jerusalem. Paul related his meeting with the Jerusalem church leaders to establish that although he was not dependent on anyone but God, he preached the same gospel that the other apostles did. Paul also mentions the incident here with Peter in chapter 2 of Galatians. Peter's hypocrisy on this occasion not only led other believers into hypocrisy, but also raised the possibility of splitting the church. Now the last few verses of chapter 2, there are a number of difficult phrases, but the main thrust is that law-keeping of any variety has no place in a person's salvation. There's an important distinction here that Paul helps us to understand. A person is not saved by faith and then sanctified by the law. This is what those false teachers were promoting. A person is saved by faith or justified by faith, and a person is also sanctified by that same faith. And verse 20 and 21 of chapter 2 make that abundantly clear. Now, chapters 3 and 4 concern a more detailed exposition of justification by faith. In chapter 3, Paul cites that the Old Testament method of salvation was also that of justification by faith, and he uses Abraham as an example there in verses 6 through 9. Then, because the Galatians were making a choice to live under the law, he warned them that the law had a curse attached to it. But in Christ's death, Christ took the curse of the law, and anyone who identifies with him can be saved and avoid this curse of the law. Now, a question would naturally arise at this point, if the law had no place in salvation, then why in the world did God bother giving it in the first place? First, understand that the law was given to carefully define sin. Romans 3.20 tells us that. And second, the law revealed the righteous requirements of God. The law was designed to be temporary until Christ came. The law functioned as a tutor, protecting and teaching Israel. But now that God has declared believers adult sons, the law no longer has jurisdiction over the believer. And in light of this transformation, why, asked Paul, do you want to put yourself under the authority of these laws? He begs them to forsake their Jewish legalism and enjoy their newfound freedom in Christ. Now, from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul applies much of what he has taught. Having ruled out the Mosaic Law as regulatory standard for Christian behavior, some here are going to be tempted to interpret freedom as doing whatever I want. And this is false liberty, Paul says. Paul emphasizes that believers have been set free in order to serve one another. The power and ministry of the Holy Spirit is available to all believers to enable them to live God-pleasing lives. However, there will always be a struggle between the Spirit and our sinful nature. And the first 10 verses of chapter 6 shows what it looks like when a believer is operating properly in control by the Spirit. Now, verses, or excuse me, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 is a conclusion to the book of Galatians. In these last few verses, Paul summarized some of his more important points and appealed to his readers again to follow through and put into practice what he's taught them. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for for Galatians. We got to get on to Ephesians. And the basic theme of Ephesians is the church Christ is the head. And the body is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians is remarkably similar to Colossians. Both epistles deal mainly with the church as the body of Christ. Now, Ephesians is divided into two main sections, chapters 1 through 3, that deal primarily with doctrine. And chapters 4 through 6 deal primarily with application. So Paul begins the letter here in the first 14 verses of chapter 1 by praising God for his redemptive work. You know, the church came into being because of God's great work of salvation. And Paul says that each member of the Godhead was active in the redemption of mankind. God the Father sovereignty selected us. God the Son paid for salvation through his blood. God the Spirit secures this salvation by sealing us. Three times in these first 14 verses, Paul says that salvation was for the, quote, glory of God. Paul was not simply content to only describe the church's blessings in Christ. He prayed that his readers would have a better understanding of their hope, their identity, and the great power of God. The same power that rose Christ from the grave is the same power that established Christ as the head over all creation and the same power that put Christ as head over that church. Now, chapter 2 reminds us of our old condition, what we were like before God saved us. Into that helpless situation, the grace of God burst onto the scene. Works do not save a person. It's the grace of God. However, good works are a part of God's purpose for our lives, but not as contributions to our salvation. Because of this work of God in salvation, Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled to God. In the church, there's no longer distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's unity. And this unity is emphasized through the imagery of being fellow citizens of a community, of being part of God's family, and of being part of the one temple building, the church, that is constantly under construction. Now, at this point in the letter, chapter 3, Paul refers to a mystery, which is a truth not previously revealed. The mystery was unknown before God revealed it, in the New Testament to the apostles and prophets. The content of the mystery is threefold. First, Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of God's riches. Second, they are fellow members of the body of Christ, which is the church. Colossians 1.18 tells us that. And third, they are fellow partakers of the promise concerning Christ in the gospel. That is, whoever trusts in him will have everlasting life. You know, The mystery here is not that Gentiles would enjoy salvation and enter into blessing along with with Israel. God revealed that in the Old Testament all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Isaiah 42. The mystery here is that God has joined Jews and Gentiles as equals into one body. When we accept the mystery of the church, we're able to see just how big and broad God's love is to embrace both Jew and Gentile. And the amazing thing is that it was always the plan to do it this way. There are no mistakes in God's plans. There are no do-overs, no hiccups. Paul's ultimate goal here is that his readers might be so full of the knowledge and appreciation for God that they might allow Christ to fully control them. Chapter 3, verse 19. Ceaseless praise is given to God for uniting two seemingly irreconcilable groups into one body, Called the church. Now, chapters one through three of Ephesians, as we've covered, were doctoral in their focus. Now, chapters four through six are practical in their focus. And there are seven, or excuse me, there are several areas of practical instruction that Paul highlights in these last three chapters of Ephesians. The first practical part is unity, and that's the focus in chapters 4, 1 through 16. Unity has been provided by the Spirit, but we must be diligent to preserve that unity using our spiritual gifts to help others mature in Christ. This interdependency works to strengthen the unity of the church. A second focus here in this section is righteousness, and that's in chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 14. We're called to live godly lives, ridding ourselves of sinful habits, and this is aided by our constant pursuit of renewing our minds daily to focus on Christ. Paul says, putting off the old and putting on the new. The old is walking in darkness, the new is walking in light, following the example of our Father. A third part here in this section is wisdom, and that's the focus of chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. We walk wisely by allowing the Spirit to control our lives. We view things as God views them. We use every opportunity to please and glorify God. Walking in wisdom is applied to different groups. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Now, the fourth and last focus here in this section is on spiritual warfare. That's chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul reminds us that we are in a spiritual war with a powerful and highly organized enemy. Some days that battle is worse than others, but whatever the battle we are facing, God has provided all the necessary armor to ensure our victory. However, the assumed point here is that we must put on the armor each day and keep it on. And prayer is a part of that equation. All right, well, that's all the time we have for Ephesians. We got to move on to Philippians. Now, many people like to cite the theme of joy for the book of Philippians, but I feel that selflessness is a better theme that describes the main message in the book. It's selfless living that Paul wants us to practice because living selflessly is how our Savior lived. So in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul demonstrates his selfless attitude. It's demonstrated in his prayer for the Philippian believers. He prayed for them and continually thanked the Lord for them and for their partnership with him in the advancement of the gospel. Paul desired the gospel be advanced at all costs, no matter if he is in chains, in prison, or if he is free. He wants the gospel to be proclaimed. He selflessly desires for Christ to be exalted at all costs, whether it is through his life or in his death, Christ is to be exalted. So Paul encourages the Philippians to remain steadfast in their duty to conduct themselves worthy of the Lord. To stand firm in one spirit and one mind also demonstrates the selfless attitude that Paul encourages. Furthermore, when each person has the mind of Christ as his or her focus, we are all joined together to show the selfless love of Christ as we show it to others. Now, in chapter 2, Paul provides some examples and instruction on selflessness. There can be no greater example of selflessness than Jesus himself. His act of becoming a man and voluntarily dying for the world on a cross is the ultimate picture of his selfless nature. And in like manner, Christ's career also has implications for us today. The Philippian Christians um, have been obedient to the Lord and to Paul in the past, but it was vital that they work out their own salvation. In other words, they were to progress or to mature in their spiritual life. We work out we work, excuse me, I'll get this right. We work out our salvation when we live in step with the Holy Spirit who leads us according to God's will. Now towards the end of chapter 2, Paul gives two other examples of selflessness, and they are Timothy and they are Epaphroditus, who would actually carry this book to the Philippian believers. In chapter 3, Paul focuses on the role of selfless living as it relates to our salvation and sanctification. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul instructs these believers about the folly of putting their confidence in the works of the law for salvation. Salvation comes by the selfless act of God's giving his son for the world. If there was anyone who could boast in their life accomplishments or works, it was Paul. But Paul rejected those things that he accomplished. The world would consider those things Paul accomplished as valuable but to Paul, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is the only thing that Paul wanted to gain. Paul knew it was was not about him. It was all about Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. And this attitude of selflessness, Paul said, needed to be carried over to the realm of sanctification or daily Christian living. We must live in a constant attitude of selflessness like Christ did. We must find godly examples to follow. A godly example is one who follows God's word rather than one who follows their own ways. And yes, it's hard to follow the Lord each day with sin trying to beat us down each step of the way. But we are called to continue this struggle, to continue to live like Jesus, because one day our mortal bodies will be changed to be like Jesus' glorified bodies, and our struggle with sin will be over. And praise the Lord when that day comes. But until that time, we are to stand fast in the Lord. And it's only in his power that we can live selflessly. Now, as we move into chapter 4, Paul gives some final words about selflessness. In verses um, 2 through 9 of chapter 4, we have some general exhortations to be united, to be joyful, to be gentle. Paul encourages us not to be anxious, but to pray about everything. And then we're also to be righteous in our thinking. Following all these exhortations will aid us in our pursuit of living selfless Christian lives. Now, verses 10 through 21, Paul cites that the way a person can know that he is living selflessly is his level of satisfaction. Paul had learned to be content and to rejoice regardless of his physical circumstances. It was Christ who enabled him to be content, verse 13. However, the most important thing to Paul was not the gifts from the Philippians, but the spiritual reward that would come to the Philippians because of their financial investments in his ministry. He viewed their gift as an offering ultimately made to God that was acceptable to him, an act of selfless living. Well, that's all we have, the time we have for Philippians. Now we got to carry on to the book of Colossians. Now, the main theme of the book of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. Despite the claims of the false teachers who were telling the Colossians that their faith in Christ was not enough, Paul demonstrates that these Colossian believers were complete in Christ. They did not need anything else. In his introduction to the book in the first 14 verses, although Paul did not have any personal contact with this church, he had heard about their progress in the faith and prayed for this church that they would continue to grow in real knowledge and wisdom of Christ. He reminded this church that understanding must come through the working of God's Spirit in them. And a correct understanding of God is foundational if they are to live correct. Christian grows more like a fruit tree than a stalk of wheat. We can't simply bear fruit and then die. We continue to grow in our ability to bear more fruit as we increase in the knowledge of God. Each passing year should see both growth in Christian, uh, Christian spiritual life and an increase in his fruitfulness. Now, in keeping with the theme of the book, The Supremacy of Christ in All Things, Paul speaks to the deity of Christ in the next section of verses, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and we'll spend a moment here talking about this section, very, very important. Paul describes the supremacy of Christ in three different relationships. First, in relation to God the Father. The concept of the word image denotes three things. It denotes likeness, like Christ is the exact likeness of God, a mere image. It denotes representation. Christ represents God to us, and it denotes manifestation. Christ makes God known to us. While God made man in his image, Christ is the image of God. To call Christ the image of God is to say that in him, the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested. In him, the invisible has become visible. Now, a second relationship is the relationship Christ has to creation. The word firstborn you'll notice here of creation denotes both priority in time as well as supremacy in rank. Christ was before all creation in time and he is over all creation in authority. Now the context of this passage seems to favor the idea of sovereignty from the word firstborn. Firstborn does not mean that Christ was the first created being. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Christ is the originator of creation, the architect of creation. Furthermore, he is also superior to angelic beings or the heavenly powers. Christ is also the goal of creation. All things were created for him. History is moving towards the goal when the whole created universe will glorify Christ. The third relationship is Christ and the church. Christ supplies authority and leadership for the church, which is his body. He is sovereign over it and its source of spiritual life. God's ultimate purpose in Christ's work on the cross was to reconcile all things to himself. The Colossians had experienced this reconciliation. But Paul had been given a unique role in the body of Christ as he ministered the gospel of reconciliation to mainly Gentiles. Paul was a servant who faithfully expounded God's revelation for the sake of the Gentiles. That God would save the Gentiles was not a new revelation, but that God would deal with them on the same level plane as he did with the Jews. Now that is new information. Now, it was important for Paul to set down the foundation of the deity of Christ and his supremacy in all things in chapter 1 before moving to the pressing problem in Colossae concerning false doctrine. Think of it this way. The more you handle the real truth, the easier it is to discern error when you come across it. If um, we spend endless hours studying erring doctrine and teachings and little studying of God's word, then we have a hard time discerning what is real and what is false. The more we read and study God's word, the easier it is for us to spot teaching that is an error. And that's precisely what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And from chapter 2, verses 8 through chapter 3, verses 4, Paul undertakes a discussion of false doctrine. You know, After warning them about man's philosophies, Paul again declares that God's essential nature is found in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9. He notes that all needed power and grace are found in Christ. We have been given life, forgiveness, deliverance, and victory in Christ. Since we have all this in Christ, why get involved in the legalism and ritualism of men? Since Christ has liberated us from all these things, why do we want to put ourselves back under them again? believers have an exalted position in Christ and we need to live a life that conforms to that exalted position this is the content of chapter 3 verses 5 through chapter 4 verse 6 there are certain sinful actions that we're to remove from our lives according to chapter 3 verses 5 through 9 but there are also certain virtues that must become part of our lives chapter 3 verses 10 to 17 as Paul did this In the book of Ephesians, he also exhorts us here to godly living in our families, in our relationships in the home, and they are to reflect our position in Christ. Furthermore, being disciplined in our prayer lives is also something that's needed. Now, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 is a conclusion to Colossians. Paul had a vast number of people in his life and ministry, and a lot of individuals are mentioned at the closing of this book. This demonstrates the simple fact that Paul understood that he was simply a member of God's team, along with other capable individuals who contributed to the work of the gospel in the early church. All right, that's all we have time for for Colossians. Now we've got to move on to the last book for this week, which is 1 Thessalonians. And there are several competing, or competing themes in this book, but the main theme that seems to be highlighted here is a believer's life and thinking in light of the return of Christ. The coming of Christ motivated these believers, and it should both motivate and encourage us today as well. So chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians is taken up with Paul's desire to encourage these believers who were making good progress in their faith. They were maturing, and news of their growth and good example had reached their neighboring provinces. And it seems that they were very capable in their evangelism, that Paul left his ministry of pioneer evangelism. It was no longer needed in that area. They had done so well. They had taken his foundation and squarely built on it and continued to build on it properly. But then we fall into chapters 2, Verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul takes up the desire to correct some misinformation about himself and his fellow missionaries that some of his critics were circulating. He reminded the Thessalonians of his past ministry to them. He was not guilty of teaching error or greed or being manipulative. Instead, his ministry was characterized by the plain teaching of God's word. He was like a mother and a father to them. The Thessalonians had responded in a positive way despite persecution from some unbelieving Jews. And according to chapter 2, verse 17, Paul and his companions had to leave Thessalonica prematurely. Now, if you want to know the whole story, the reason why, you can see Acts chapter 17. Paul attempted to return to the Thessalonians more than once, but he was prevented from being able to do so. So he decided it was best to send Timothy to them in the meantime. Timothy was sent to help the church persevere in the midst of their persecution from these unbelieving Jews. When Timothy came back, he gave Paul a report that the church had been strong and stood firm against the attacks of the enemy. And so Paul rejoiced with them because of their faithfulness. Now from chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 24, Paul writes some additional instruction to this church that would help and contribute to their spiritual growth. First, he exhorted them to correct some moral problems in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Then in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul encouraged them to excel in love for one another, seeking to do what is best for each other. Then Paul turned to another subject concerning the rapture of the church. Evidently, and again without getting into a whole lot of detail here, they apparently thought that one had to be alive to participate in the rapture of the church. Paul corrects their thinking, telling them that both the dead believer and the believers who are alive when the rapture happens— Both groups will take part in the resurrection. When a believer dies today, their spirit goes to be with the Lord until the day of the rapture. And when the rapture happens, Christ will bring the spirit of the dead Christians from heaven. As these dead believers' bodies are resurrected from their graves, their body and spirit will be reunited into a glorified fashion during the rapture. Now, Paul continued his discussion of future things in chapter 5, but changed his subject from the rapture to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a phrase that is used to denote the tribulation period in this context. So Paul assures these believers that they will not experience this day of the Lord, this tribulation. I guess it seems that some at Thessalonica thought they were enduring the tribulation at that time. And sometimes I think today that we are enduring the tribulation as well, but we're not. Now, Paul closes the book of First Thessalonians with some final instructions for positive relationships in the church and positive godly living individually. Shoo! All right. Well, we made it through five books. I think that's the most we've done in a single podcast. Next week, we're going to have several additional small books to work through, maybe more than five. Email any questions you have to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.